The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And I'm delighted to welcome my guest today, Mr. Ridge Shin. He has recently founded Big Picture Beef to build the supply of grass-fed beef in the Northeast United States. The company's mission is to establish an environmentally sustainable and economically viable model of producing beef through managed grazing. No feedlots and no grain ever. Big Picture Beef is producing Northeast grass-fed beef for Northeast customers. And the benefits of this program will be nutrient-dense foods, carbon sequestration, soil fertility, and biodiversity, plus energy savings and a revitalized rural economy in the region. I wanted to interview Mr. Shin because, as a registered dietitian, I know the value of 100% grass-fed beef, and I want him to explain how he got into it and get into the nitty-gritty about how this is going to help our planet from an environmental perspective. So welcome, Mr. Shin. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm really curious to know how you became involved and committed to grass-fed beef. Now, you've been working with cattle for more than 20 years. Have you been always working with cattle on a grass or grazing-based system, or did you raise cattle with grain or conventionally at any point in your career? Well, way back, I actually milked cows in a very conventional New England dairy. We had about 100 head, and we fed you know, conventional grain and that kind of thing, and that it was a total uh, confinement system. Cows never went out on pasture and that kind of thing. That was a long time ago. When I more recently started farming was uh, actually after I turned 50, and I had always wanted to farm and finally got restarted and was going to do multi-species and organize farmers to go to market. And then I stumbled upon grass-fed, some of the early literature by Joe Robinson of Eat Wild fame and you know, the science was all there, and I said to myself, this was back in 2001, why isn't anybody doing this? And so we did a little experiment. I went to about four of my producers, and we produced some grass-fed beef, grass only. We harvested the cattle, and then we evaluated them, and it was all over the place. Some tasted pretty good, some was terrible, some was tough. And I realized we really had a job to kind of sort out good quality because even though it was raised on grass, if it wasn't a good eating experience, people weren't going to embrace the product. So at that point, I figured I didn't have enough decades to do a bunch of long-term progeny testing. So I hooked up with a guy that Gerald Fryer bought a ultrasound machine to the mix. So we started ultrasounding live cattle, and we could see then intermuscular fat and tenderness in the live animal, in grass-fed beef. We could pick out the good eating experiences from any herd. And so that was great. We could market some great meat that was grass-fed. But then we realized that the producers were not going to let us come in and cherry-pick the herd every year and take the good stuff and leave the, the unpleasant eating experiences. So we realized we had to grapple with the genetic 
prescription to produce fat beef on grass. And, uh, you know, that was a whole other little trail that we went on. But back at that point, I was really trying to push the product into the market. I actually introduced uh, Marion Burroughs, who was the food writer to the New York Times. Sure about grass-fed beef. You know, I met her at an opening, and I said, did you know about this? And she said, that can't be true. I said, oh, it is. I'll send you the science. So I emailed her all the articles, and she wrote back, and she said, I really want to break this story. And I said at that time, great, but don't break it yet because we don't have any meat. So she sat on the story for almost eight months until the mad cow incident broke out in England, and I went up to my computer to send her an email and say, it's time for the story. And she called me and said, my editor say it's time for the story. So that's kind of when the story broke. And then it's been about 15 years, and a lot of people now, today, everybody has heard of grass-fed. And many, many people embrace it. It's in the marketplace. It's in pretty much every store, including Walmart these days. So the customers have embraced it. And it's made its way into the marketplace in a big way. The vast majority of the product that's in the marketplace is product of some other country. Exactly. Uruguay, Australia, New Zealand, and now Ireland are big importers into this country of grass-fed beef. Yeah, and I'm very concerned about the customer's inability to pick out meat that comes from American farmers. So... I know we've lost country of origin labeling. I don't know if you've worked on the policy side of things, but I am concerned. Do you have any suggestions on how we might be able to get that back? Yeah, not with policy. I'm fairly jaded on policy answers of any sort. But in our company, Big Picture Beef, we are using a radio frequency tag that documents the whereabouts of every animal every day of its life all the way through the slaughter process. And interestingly, this is a software that we're buying from Ireland because in the European Union, it is the law that you know where every animal is every day. If it crosses the street, that's documented. And if you go into a restaurant, you can say to the waiter, can you tell me where this animal came from? And they'll go back into the kitchen and bring out a passport (sighs) with that animal's farm of origin and where it lived all through its life through processing. So it's not rocket science. It's done in the entire EU, and we have embraced it in our system, partly as a management tool so we know where everything is all the time, but also as a communication to our customers that we can toggle on as many switches as we want and show people the farm of origin, the cow-calf farm, our finishing farm where the cattle are aggregated into bigger groups and finished on grass, and then note where they're harvested and right into customers. I think it's very important, but it's not a USDA policy. It's our own internal company policy as a means of communicating clearly to the customer where the animals have been in their whole life. Mm -hmm. Well, it's tough because most people will go to the grocery store to get their meat. I mean, for those of us who are lucky enough to know the farmer perhaps be able to buy directly from the farmer or at a farmer's market where you can have this conversation, we're at an advantage, but the majority of individuals go to a supermarket where we don't have the luxury of knowing. And add to that, I know that I've been lied to with regard to how much grass is actually fed. So every farmer wants to say, oh, yeah, my animals are grass-fed, but are they 
finished on grass, and how can the consumer know that indeed their animal has been fed nothing but grass? And what about all of those additional supplements to the cattle diet? So, for example, the distiller's grain is this cheap yeah, yeah, filler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk to me a little bit about that. Give us some consumer education. Well, it's very, very hard to know because all cattle companies have embraced the idea that their cattle are grass-fed. And indeed, all cattle are grass-fed for the most of their life. But then when they move to the feedlot, for the last 120 days, the last 90 days, they're fed grain. Right. And that process turns everything on the head. In terms of the grass-fed certifications, there's a handful of companies that certify grass-fed, and some of them allow supplements, and I have a real issue with them because any supplement, whether it's soy holes or distiller's grain or anything like that, allows glyphosates to come into the animal. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's a real problem. And so it's, it's hard. People have to really look closely at that. And the difference that it makes, it's interesting in terms of the grain, you can actually do a tissue test and figure out whether it ate grain or not. Susan Duckett is the sits in the endowed chair for forage research at Clemson University and has done quite a bit of research in grass-fed beef. And she says that if it ate grain, it has a ratio of omega-6 to omega-3 of about 1.2 omega-6 to 1 omega-3. If it ate grain, it could have 8, 10, 14 omega-6 to 1 omega-3. She said that's like a fingerprint. You can Mm -hmm. take any piece of meat, look at that ratio, and tell whether it ate grain or not. And um, that's a big factor in terms of the diet. And most people say, oh, if you feed them grass, then they have uh, high omega-3. But the reality is they have the correct ratio of omega-6 to omega-3. And both omega-6 and omega-3 are essential fatty acids. They're critical for brain function and all those things. They just need to be in the right ratio. And when we feed grain, we upset that ratio, which then causes all the constellation of health problems that red meat is supposed to, to do. It's not the cattle, it's not the meat, it's the feed. And so you know, that's a huge thing that most people don't understand. And the fact is, if those fats are in the right balance, then we want more fat, not less fat. That's another big misconception in grass-fed beef. If you go to anybody's website, they all say, well, my grass-fed beef is lean, because the research shows the grass-fed beef is lean. But the way the research is achieved is a researcher like Susan Duckett takes 100 head of cattle, puts 50 on a feed, grain, and leaves 50 on forage. When the 50 that are on grain get fat, then they kill all the animals and compare. Clearly, the ones that are on forage did not get as fat, so they're lean in comparison. But that's really all the research proves. It doesn't prove that... Grass-fed cattle, if you got them fat, would be comparable in fat. And we've sent samples to Susan Duckett, and she'll precipitate out the fat. And, to, and out of a sample of eight animals we sent, six were choice, which is fat, and one was prime, which is real fat, and one was select. And she was kind of surprised and said, wow, I can see that these only ate grass because it's a 1.2 to 1 omega-6, omega-3 ratio, but they're fat. And fat is where the flavor is, and the fat is good for you if it's in the right ratio. So that's a real issue in the grass-fed world is that, you know, fat is good. Now, to create that fat or to allow the cattle to get fat, 
is a real skill, and that's what a lot of the cattle that are harvested at grass-fed are not fat and uh, are actually lean and are not overly tasty. But Mm -hmm. when you manage the cattle so that you harvest the energy in the grass, then you can make them fat. And to do that, they need to move kind of like a herd of buffalo because the energy in the grass resides in the top half of the grass, so the cattle need to eat the top of the grass and then move like a herd of buffalo. So that can be managed with electric fence, so they're constantly eating the top of the plants and trampling the rest of the plant, and then they can get fat in a fairly short period of time if they're managed like that. But achieving that fat or finish on grass is a real skill that a lot of folks playing in the grass-fed business don't really understand how to do. So there's a lot of meat that's grass-fed. It's certifiably 100% grass-fed. It's not a very good eating experience, and that's mm-hmm. kind of the challenge of the business at this point in time. Let me just take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Mr. Ridge Shin. He is a grazier. He has decades' experience looking at the benefits of grass-fed beef. And we are going to jump to another topic, although I do want to bring one issue to the fore before we move on, and that is you mentioned that there's glyphosate residue in grain that is certainly sprayed with Roundup or other formulations of pesticides or herbicides that contain glyphosate. So I just want to clarify that for our listeners. When you mention glyphosate, where does that come from? It comes from herbicide-sprayed grains. Okay, anything else you want to add to that with regard to the glyphosate? No, it's just a real scourge on our health, that's all. And, you know, that's why I feel so strongly about there being no supplement of any sort, because even things like wheat, glyphosate is used to wilt wheat before it's harvested. So it's not sprayed as a pesticide, but it's used as a management tool to wilt it and make it dry before it's combined. So right. it's in all kinds of industrial grains. Right. Um, well, that's actually why I personally recommend to consumers that they look for not only 100% grass-fed, but also organic, because that assures them that not only is their meat going to be coming from an animal that's only been fed grass and have that great ratio of omega-6 to omega-3, as you mentioned, but it also assures the consumer that they're not going to have any kind of residues that may have been sprayed on the grass or the forage. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. One of the things to watch out for in organic, there are producers that raise organic beef and feed them grain, and it's going to create an out-of-whack omega-6, omega-3 ratio for the human. So the recommendation to the consumer, the gold standard would be grass-fed and organic. All right, let's, let's move to the other issue that I feel will easily take the second half of this program, and that is a subject that was brought forth in the January 2010 issue of Time magazine. And the title of the article was Save the Planet, Eat More Beef. And the subtitle says, you know, environmentalists have been giving cows a bad rap in recent years. Between what bovines eat and what they excrete, cattle production emits a lot of greenhouse gas. But if fed solely grass, cows could play a role in reversing climate change. And you are featured in this 
article and your name, your moniker is the Carbon Cowboy. Could you please explain to our listeners how we can help alleviate or reduce climate change, the adverse effects of climate change, by eating more beef? Right. Yeah. yeah what it is is that if cattle are raised correctly on grass on a, a multi-paddock grazing system, they can actually sequester vast amounts of carbon and fix the water cycle. So, if you know, people talk about biomimicry. If you think of the herd of buffalo, so here's this massive herd of thousands and thousands of animals eating grass and moving. So as they move through, there's all this manure and urine, and the grass is trampled. There's nothing to eat. They move on. And so, you know, what created the deep, fertile soils of our prairie? Were they there before the buffalo showed up? Or did the buffalo show up and then the deep prairie soils develop? It really was a symbiosis between the herbivore and the plants and the soil. And so what we've learned, and fairly recently, is that the plants will pull carbon out of the air. CO2, everybody understands photosynthesis, pulls CO2 out of the air. The plant makes that into a sugar and puts it down in the roots of the plant. Fairly recent research has shown that glomalin is formed, which is a waxy substance that covers the soil aggregates. It makes that carbon stable way below the soil, not at the soil surface. A lot of people think that trampling the grass at the soil surface it creates compost, and that's the carbon. But the carbon storage is way below the soil where it does not oxidize and return to the air as CO2. And it happens very rapidly in a managed ecosystem. If you manage the solar collector, which is your plant correctly, capture that carbon, put it down below, and then you cover the ground with the trampled grass so that you don't evaporate all the water out of the soil, it, it happens very rapidly. The, the corollary to putting the carbon in is that water can penetrate rapidly into soil that has been grazed in this way, multi-paddock or mob grazing, some people call it. There's a researcher that works for the government, NRCS, in South Dakota, who did a, it's a little video on our website, but he did a soil percolation test. So he just drove a pipe in the ground, and he tried to percolate the ground where corn had been planted using the most modern no-till methodology, and then he tested the percolation rate in an area that was extensively grazed the way most ground in the west is grazed where the cattle just go out there all summer long in one area and then the third method was where they actually are managed to move like a herd of buffalo so the percolation rate in the cornland was 30 minutes so do we have to wonder why the mississippi floods the water cannot penetrate the ground for 30 minutes it flows off into the rivers in the extensive graze sample it took seven minutes to percolate much better than the cornland and he moved over and tested the mob grazed or multi-paddock grazed land, and it took 10 seconds. So the water coming out of the air, penetrating the ground, and once it goes in the ground, in that multi-paddock grazing system, we have the carbon below the ground, which absorbs many times its weight in water. So now all of a sudden you have water penetrating, held stably below the soil, and slow release instead of flooding the Mississippi. So if you can imagine doing this, I tell people a lot of times, I could stop the flooding of the Mississippi, I could cure the drought in the West, and I could cure human obesity. You just have to give me the three states of Illinois, Iowa, and Indiana. You have to give them to me, the whole states, and a big herd of cattle, 
and we'll put that sponge back in the soil, and we'll actually solve those huge problems. And I, I know it's true. Nobody's taking me up on it. But that's the possibility if the customer understands that they buy the right kind of beef that's raised in this modality, that will pull on the rope, and it'll be much more economic to raise beef out there than it is corn, which is what we're doing today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've got some great materials on your website, Big Picture Beef, one of which you shared with me, which goes through the reasons why 100% grass-fed is so much more advantageous to our environment. And you, you also talk about feed grain and how it kills the soil. So you, you describe how every year 97 million acres of land are plowed up to plant corn, and 40% of that corn goes to livestock feed. Another big chunk goes to ethanol. So I don't know. Everybody says we're feeding the world with this corn, but I just can't. It just doesn't make sense to me. And you say that almost all this corn is planted in soil treated with glyphosate, which kills the microbial life, including all of the beneficial fungi and assorted bacteria that are key to soil health and fertility. And with the loss of those microbes, the soil can't store carbon, retain water, or produce nutritious food. Right, precisely. You know, I drove through those three states once before the corn was planted. And as I was driving, I thought something's very weird. And it dawned on me that the median strip is all green and they're out there mowing it. And the little strip on the side of the fence is green and being mowed. And the cornland, which I'm driving by for like eight or ten hours, there's no weeds, not a single weed in this acres and acres and acres. And I realized that, you know, if you go to Manhattan, the weeds come up through the macadam. Yeah. Here's our breadbasket, you know, our best soils, and the weeds won't grow. It's a really scary situation that our soils, our best soils in the country, and the major reason is the corn is, you know, that's a policy reason. Corn is subsidized for the ethanol system, and it's subsidized, which makes us able to feed it to cattle, which is why the capo came into existence, because we had surplus corn and decided to feed it to cattle at scale and created those situations where we have what they call excess nutrient, really pollution, and it's not possible to get those nutrients back to the land because there's such concentration. And as a result, when people go to the supermarket, they say, well, the corn-fed beef is cheaper than the grass-fed beef. And I said, well, if you don't measure any of the so-called externalities, like the flooding the Mississippi, the weird weather, the uh, E. coli and things like that, if you don't measure any of those things, it's less expensive. But Mm-hmm. And, and that's without factoring in health or health care or any of those expenses. Absolutely. All of those externalities to our industrial agricultural system is really a shame. Well, what do you want consumers to do to help us shift the way we produce our food? And I have to go back to the policy piece because I know that we will be working on the farm bill in the next year. And so... I do think we need to have an eye towards policy and a relationship with our legislators to let them know what we want as consumers, producers, and healthcare providers. Talk to me a bit about what you would like to see changed in the farm bill. Well, mainly the subsidies is a, a horrendous battle, but if you had a subsidy for grass versus corn, all of a sudden you'd see a big shift because uh, when the corn got so high as a result of the 
farm bill, many, many, many acres of grass that have been grass for years and years and years got plowed and planted the corn. But the, So I would eliminate the ethanol completely. The ethanol is a net negative, in my opinion, that takes more LP gas to make the ethanol than we get in fuel. Exactly. Um, but again, it's a government concept that it, we're fuel, growing our own fuel, but it, it really doesn't work energy-wise. But those things have, are very detrimental. Some kind of a, a positive for grassland or um, soil, you know, building soil, but it's... Uh, fairly complex, and, and there's a lot of people that feel like the science isn't there. You know, one scientist that is doing peer-reviewed studies now, Richard Teague out of Texas A&M, is finding absolutely true that the carbon is measurable that is put down by these multi-paddock grazing systems. So the science is there, and it would be great if the policy followed science rather than where the, the pressure is coming from now to reward the corn subsidies. Yeah, exactly. And we've got a big challenge with climate change and water resources. And I I heard a wonderful lecture a couple of years ago about how we will be feeling the pressure of climate change mostly through water. So your, your comments about, you know, the ability to reduce erosion and all of this runoff of our soil is critically important through grazing. Now, I thought it was interesting. We just have a couple of minutes left, so I want to make sure... I touch on one of the jobs that you had prior to your grazing experience, and that is you worked at a farming museum. Tell me what you learned there. Yeah, well, it was fascinating. It was, it's called Old Stibbers Village, and it's where the concept of living history was first kind of developed in the 1970s. We were interpreting the 1830s. So we had oxen. We mowed the hay with the scythe. We did all. We tried to replicate the farmer's year uh, growing the same things and farming in the same way. So it was fascinating because at the same time I was the herdsman on a modern dairy. So in the morning I'd use a milking machine and a five-on-the-side herringbone milking parlor and then go down to Sturbridge and get the wooden bucket and go sit on the three-legged stool and milk the cow. So well, it was a great juxtaposition of the different things. But one of the things that was fascinating is we did a lot of research and Everybody at the time was a farmer, and there was very little farmer selling food to the customer because everybody was a farmer. But what was interesting, it was the first kind of model of what I call aggregation, where all the farmers, if you were a lawyer, you still had a few cows. If you were a blacksmith, you had a few cows. So everybody milked their cows when the grass was green and made cheese and butter. You take your cheese and butter to the general store and trade for those things you couldn't make, and the storekeeper was the original aggregator. He'd take all the cheese from all the various farms, put it in a barrel, and take the barrel to Boston. So he was aggregating from a bazillion little small farms and taking the product to market. And that's a model that we're finally coming to the idea of food hubs and that kind of thing, but that's that aggregation model to deal with the huge markets that are out there. The small family farm is a great idea, but it needs to be combined with a number of other small family farms that are growing to the same standard to go to market. Excellent. 
Well, Mr. Shin, we will have to end our conversation here because our time is up, but I will make sure that we provide a link to your website. It's www.ridgeshin.com, and I will provide a link. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri, and we have been speaking with Ridge Shin, a grazer who has worked with cattle for over 20 years. Thank you so much, Mr. Shin for being my guest. Thank you.